Okay, uh, some of you I know are new, and what we've been doing the last few weeks is we're going through the epistles of John, and epistle just means it's a letter. John wrote a letter to churches that he had been involved with, and just as a recap of how we get to this position, uh, the church in Jerusalem has gone through a great upheaval. Uh, there have been an increasing number of rebellions against Rome in the 70 years following the um, birth of Jesus. And so about 40 years that we estimate after the death of Jesus, the rebellion has become so significant that Rome says, we're going to squash this. They come in at 70 AD and basically overthrow the city, destroy the temple, and they just say, you know, we're done. We're done. Uh, This is when, if you read in your scripture about the diaspora, the dispersion, uh, or diaspora, then this is, this is when it happens. Up until this time, uh, John has been in Jerusalem. But with the dispersion, John goes into Turkey. And in Turkey, he becomes very influential in a circuit of churches in Turkey that he begins talking with, traveling with. He helps to start the churches, and then he helps to oversee them. So his epistles to those churches are similar to Paul's epistles to Galatians, Ephesians, Corinthians, Philippians, those epistles. Um, These are the churches John's worked with. And interestingly enough, when you read the book of Revelation, it is the book of Revelation, or it's the revelation that John receives from Jesus. And when he writes to the seven churches, he is writing to, guess which, seven churches. The churches in Turkey that he has been working with. So these three epistles... 1 John, 2 John, 3 John are written by the same Apostle John that wrote John, but these are letters to those churches, and we talked about the two primary things in which John wants to communicate, and that is our ability to walk in love and truth. So we've spent a rip-roaring time for the last few weeks talking about sin, which everyone has enjoyed thoroughly. I know you probably left and you went to lunch together and you said, let's talk about sin some more. This is awesome. I love it. Um, Who would like to confess their sins? So, you know, I'm sure that's exactly what happened, um, you know, after you left here. Today, we're going to do the hard work. This is the hard work of transitioning from his discussion on uh, sin to his discussion of love. Now, why is it hard work? It's hard work because in today's day and age, in the culture in which we live, which is nothing new, this was a problem he dealt with, which is exactly why he wrote this to begin with, there was being demonstrated and taught a division between the teaching on sin and the teaching on love. You had to pick one or the other. And in our culture, this is very much the teaching today. Either you talk about sin or you talk about love. The problem is none of the apostles saw that. Jesus didn't talk about it that way. What we're going to attempt to do is we're going to try to marry those and understand why is John teaching like this? Why did Paul teach like this? Why did the apostles teach like this? Why did Jesus teach like this? And how do we move hand in hand with the discussion between righteousness and love? When you read the apostles, you find that there is no variance between the two. And yet in our culture, if you ever, if you talk at all about accountability, that is seen as wholly unloving. 
So as we go through this, if this is your first time with us in this series, this is an interactive series in which I'm going to give you time to talk. Today, I'm going to give you some time to talk with people around you, and then I want you to, to answer back to me. So you have an opportunity to ask questions. If you like to ask a question, you have an opportunity to make a statement, or you have the opportunity to even disagree. But I would ask you that whatever opinions you share or whatever disagreements you have, have scripture to back up why you're saying what you're saying. Because if you don't have some authority in which to believe what you believe, then you stand on no foundation. So I readily admit I don't know everything. I readily admit I'm still growing. And so if you have something you'd like to bring up, I hope you'll do it. One of the ground rules that we have is that we show respect and love for one another when we disagree. Okay? All right. Are you ready? I've set you up. Now, I plan to get through chapter 3 today, which means we'll get through like two verses. Probably is what's going to happen today, and we don't have to get through the whole chapter. That is totally fine. We're actually going to start back in John chapter 2, and then we're going to take a little slower ride through the beginning of chapter 3, which is going to begin the transition of John's talk about marrying love and righteousness together, and then he kicks it into high gear around verse 11, and then... If we don't make it all the way to the end, that's okay. We can save the the rest for the end. So I've been having you read the passage, but I want to use our time effectively because our discussion always goes long. Let's look together at, we are in 1 John chapter 2. We're going to begin with verse 28, and then we're going to go from there, all right? And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears... We may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practiced righteousness has been born of him. Now, there's a few things that we can gather just from those two short verses and that we need to have some understanding of because it's setting us up for where John's headed next in this conversation. Now, I want you to remember Whenever you write an email to someone, because I'm not going to ask you the last time you wrote a letter to someone, you probably can't remember. If I wrote a letter to you, you, you may have known it was from me, but you wouldn't have been able to read it. That's why I email or I type stuff out now, because you can't read my writing. In your letters, you don't generally subdivide your points. Okay, I'm done talking about this with you. Now I'm going to talk about this. Instead, you'll just flow through what you want to say. That's exactly how they wrote their epistles. So whenever you see chapter divisions, they are put there by interpreters. They are not put there by the authors. So understand that John is not just stopping and saying, okay, I'm done with this topic, and now I'm moving to the other topic. He is just transitioning a consistent thought from beginning to end. And 1 John is the longest of those, five chapters. 2 and 3 John are one chapter each. They're very short letters, but they all have the same message, walking in truth and love. When we look at just these two short verses, what we immediately can see if we stop and we look is that one, what John is saying is, not only is he talking about abiding in him, which is how he's going to be explaining that over these next few verses, but he says, so that when he appears, we, have, we may have confidence and not shrink from him and shame at his coming. That is a huge, huge statement that John is making. John is not one of these outlandish, weird, you know, on the fringe apostles. Paul said that there were three pillars in the church in Jerusalem. Do you remember who those three were? Who? 
James, John, and Peter, good job. Good job. Pete, James, John, and Peter. I may even call on you if you raise your hand today. You're right. I keep missing David. He's in the corner. And it's not well lit. But uh, Peter, James, and John. John is seen as one of the three primary leaders of the church in Jerusalem. I want you to keep it. He's not a fringe guy. He's not a, you know, John's ideas are a little weird. He's a solid one of the top three. Others would narrow the list down to two and would say Peter and James. But Paul said it's Peter, James, and John are the three that really hold this thing up. Number one, what we see in those verses, Jesus is going to appear again. This is part of our expectation of believers. If we don't believe Jesus is coming again, why do we believe Jesus came the first time? Because he said, I'm coming back. Jesus will appear again. And when Jesus does appear again, we can respond to that in one of two ways, according to John. The first one is we can have confidence or we can have shame when he returns. So which will we have when Jesus appears? Will we be confident before him or will we have shame before him? And he goes on to talk through that we're going to read through here. He goes on to say what he's doing in his next coming. He says in verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Therefore, we know that if you're going to have confidence before him, like he's coming and you're excited. We have this app on our phones for our family called Life360. How many of you have that app? on your phones. It's so we can track each other down. <laughs> and especially now that we have kids who are driving. And also just a hint for you parents, we'll tell you how fast they're driving. It's really an awesome app. You need it. But there is this function that happens on this app in which like when my kids leave, it tells me they've left the house. When my kids are coming home, it tells me they are home, which is good for us because we both work and it helps us to know where our kids are when we can't just be calling them all the time. It lets us know when they're coming and going. Jonathan, he learned of this particular app and now he knows when I come and go. And I discovered this when I, whenever I would drive in and, oh, dad's here, you know, and so I don't, he doesn't use it for anything bad, I'm sure. But what would happen if I had told Jonathan to have something done before I got home and my little app dings and says, I'm home and he's not done it. Now I'm sure that never happens, right? Never happens. Cause you always do things the moment I ask, right? That's what I thought. <laughs> That's our story, and that's when we're sticking with it, all right? Now, let's imagine that I've given instructions to do something, and they've not been done, and it dings Dad's home. Your response in that moment is not generally going to be one of, oh, boy, Dad's home. <laughs> Instead, there's probably going to be something run, something quick happening. I've got to go run and do this real quick or, or whatever. Yeah, similar when Jesus returns, will we be excited to see him? Or will in the back of our minds, will we be saying, uh-oh, uh-oh. That's what John's saying. There, there should be a place in your life that if Jesus is the greatest treasure in which you have, that his return sparks expectation, good expectation. But if there is some area of your life that you have refused to give to him and you have just kind of held it, this is mine, I'm not letting go, I'm doing what I want, that it could create some anxiety within you that says, I'm about to be called on the carpet and I know it. 
And he goes on to say, well, one way that you can know that you have confidence is how you're living your life. Because confidence comes by knowing you are born of him. Now, this is important because over these next three chapters, John is going to use this word born ten times. Up until this place, he's not used it once. So this concept is key to the rest of what he wants to communicate to these churches in Turkey. That when you are born of him, something changes in you. And he's going to go on and explain, and he's going to give several instances, kind of benchmarks to say, this is how you know you are born of him. Now, these will just jump out at you. You don't need me to pull them out of the Greek or anything like that. They're going to jump out at you because he's very vocal and very obvious about them. He uses this idea of being born of God to say you are God's children. And he demonstrates throughout all of his teachings, so far he's focused on one in particular, and that is you will know that you are born of God if you are following his teachings. This has been his focus so far. And it's that area of righteousness. The area of righteousness is always talking about God's characteristic of holiness, set apart, different. In fact, he's going to get really, really strong on what that looks like. What he's saying is you have a responsibility to live righteously as Christ lived if you are born of him. But he's not saying what you have to do is do everything right if you want to be okay with God and not in trouble when he shows up. What he's saying instead is, if you truly are God's child, you will be concerned with how you live your life. You don't live your life to be okay with God. You love Jesus, therefore it changes the way I live my life. This is one of the hard things for people to understand. It's very hard for us to communicate. I mentioned last week, I want you to be careful in election season going and and putting using all of your influential credit with people on politics. My goal in my life is not to make sure a blue or a red wins. My goal in my life is to honor Christ and to spend eternity with him one day. That doesn't mean I won't vote. That doesn't mean I don't have an opinion. That doesn't mean I may not actually get involved in in some kind of activist way for something I really believe honors the kingdom. But we can only use our influential capital um, in very rare circumstances. And if we use it for blues and reds, then we're often going to lose it for the kingdom. So be careful about that. Be careful on how you lose your influence. Are you most trying to influence the next election? Or are you most trying to influence the world for Christ. A lot of times they are mutually exclusive. Some would say they always are. We have a responsibility as his children to represent him well. But we don't do it so that he's okay with us. We do it because we love him. There's a difference. Now, if my kids do what I ask them to do because there's a punishment that they don't like if they don't do it, that is different than them doing it because dad said so and I love dad, right? Because that's why you all do stuff, right? It's because you love me, yeah? You don't answer, don't answer. Um, But there's a difference. And again, this is why it's difficult to talk about this in today's age in which we have so many examples of people wanting to lord over you your faults. 
wanting to talk about the faults of others and not their own. And instead, what he wants us to do is he wants us to represent him well. Fourth thing we can see just in those first few verses is practicing righteousness is a defining characteristic of God's true children. It is a defining characteristic. Now, that leads us to an obvious question for me. And that is, how do you define righteousness? So if I were to ask you that question, can you give me a phrase, a word, a verse, even better, in which you, would, you, you think John would use to describe or define the word righteous? What would you say? What is righteousness? I can tell by your immediate response, you all think about this stuff all the time, right? If there's any question as, as to how you should handle something that you check with the Holy Spirit, okay? What do you mean by check with the Holy Spirit? Okay. Would I want to hear this? Would I want this done to me? Or, you know, can I be a bomb or can I be a rash? You know? Okay. All right. Am I handling this the right way? Okay. All right. What else? Good. What else? According to Psalm 1, righteousness can also be a bunch about what you don't do. Mm. You know, it says that blessed is the man that doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and his law and meditates day and night. All right. So you can... You can sin by commission or omission. You can either not do something you're supposed to do or do something you're not supposed to do. Yeah. Okay. What else? How do you think John is, would define righteousness? Or Jesus. Let's go to the big guy. How would, you, how would Jesus define righteousness? I'm not looking for a seminary answer. Just love God, love people. Okay. Greatest commandments. Being selfless. Okay, being obedient. Being obedient to what? To the pastor? No. <laughs> I'm kidding. God's word? What else? Yeah. There, there is in every description of righteousness a level of obedience, not to a person, which is one of the problems, again, if... And this is how you know this is a problem in your life. If what you believe is from what someone told you, then you have not yet done the work in God's word to come to what God has said to you. No person is an authority outside of Christ. <laughs> and so whenever we come to a belief or a place of obedience, well, this is one of the problems within the church today, is that you can be obedient to a church leader, which causes you to be disobedient to God himself. And we've gotten lots of examples where those are problems in the church today. But righteousness, 
I, I would go so far as to say our struggle to define it is part of the struggle for us to understand the marriage of love and righteousness. Because we want to be careful, right? There's something in each one of us who wants to say, well, what is right is what I want it to be. Now, of course, no one in here feels that way, I know. But sometimes I feel that way. Sometimes I just want to be right. Sometimes I, and the reason I ask you, what do you mean by check with the Holy Spirit? Sometimes I may check with him and I'll be like, eh, you'll come around. <laughs> and that's not the way the Holy Spirit works, right? So righteous, the way you define righteousness is crucially important. If we were going to be very simplistic about this, one of the ways that scripture would define righteousness is a word I've already used. And that is that righteousness is holiness. Righteousness is holiness. That's why when you talk about obedience, it's absolutely about obedience. But then that becomes, what becomes critical is, well, then what do I become obedient to? Do I become obedient to what all my friends think is the right thing to do? Which is the way a lot of people live their lives today. Do I, am I obedient to what the loudest voice says so they won't say anything bad about me? That's the way you get through middle school, right? That's the way a lot of people get through life. They live their life that way. That's the way a lot of people get through their faith. They live their faith that way. I want the loudest voice to be the nicest to me, so I will believe whatever they tell me to believe. But in Scripture, righteousness is taking on the aspect of God's holiness, which is set apart and it is doing things the way God would do them. One of the things that we believe as followers of Jesus is that we are still in a broken world. Does anyone deny that? Probably not. We live in a broken world. We are broken people. Every one of us in this room is a broken person. Not a one of us is the perfect representation of what it looks like to follow Jesus. Not a single one of us. However, what God has called us to is to something different. In fact, Scripture goes so far as to say that uh, it is impossible apart from Christ for you to exhibit in any way, small or large, any level of righteousness. You cannot do this on your own. This is why John's bringing it up and saying one of the defining characteristics that you are born of God is that you are living righteously as he is righteous because it is impossible to do it any other way, any other way. Righteousness is holiness and is one of the primary attributes to the character of God. Some would even go so far as to simply say righteousness is the opposite of sin. That's a pretty simplistic definition. Righteousness is the opposite of sin. And when we look at sin, when we commit sin, the reason that's a problem is because it goes against God's design for our lives. I've mentioned several times over the last few months a particular church father that if you've not done much reading in, I would encourage you to do some reading in, and that is of Athanasius. And Athanasius did some great breaking down of what Jesus came to do and what salvation really looks like. And the thing I love about the way Athanasius handles this is that he goes all the way back to the garden and he talks about how you were created and what you were created to look like, how you were created to live, what, what existence was supposed to be. And sin shattered it all. But what Jesus is doing is he is coming back and restoring the original picture for which God had created you to be. If God is, his goal is to restore you to that place of perfection, to that original plan that he had for you, 
if following Him means we're being restored, then it must also mean that we live differently in the world. And when we look at sin, we can look at sin as these are the arbitrary rules to say you're a part of our club or not. And let's be honest, there are a lot of places that do that. Your sin's pretty bad. You ever notice that the worst sins are always someone else's? (laughs) They're always someone else's, not our own. Jesus always responded the same way to everybody. When they wanted to bring up the sin of somebody else, his response was always, what about you? What's going on inside of you? What's in that heart of yours? And so we look at that and we recognize what he's saying is that we are different, not because we have to be, but because we get to be restored to what we were originally created for. Now, Athanasius will go on, and I don't have to teach you this. You know this already. He will go on to say that this brokenness still remains. This is why we struggle today. This is why we look forward to heaven. This brokenness still remains. The restoration is happening. We still just see him dimly. Once we will see him clearly, but that is not our time yet. John's going to say that in different words in just a few verses. We still struggle with brokenness, but the living righteously is that living in the way in which God originally created us to live. But that will create problems for you. And he's going to go on into that as well. Righteousness is the only living standard that is acceptable for us to stand before God. This is the difference that John is saying between standing before him in confidence and standing before him in shame. Now you could say, well, I'm going to stand before him in shame no matter what, because I recognize my sin. John would not, he would not agree with you. He would not agree. None of the apostles would agree with you. There can be a false level of humility in which I just can sit here and say, oh, I'm just so bad. I'm just so bad. And we do see a parable that Jesus tells between a tax collector and a Pharisee in which the tax collector is confessing his sins. And the Pharisee looks down and the Pharisee says, thank you that I am not like him. So it is not that we are not repentant, but a follower of Jesus recognizes and is thankful for the forgiveness that they are receiving. And they recognize it in others as well. Righteousness is that indicator that we are acceptable before God. The Old Testament righteousness was about what? Keeping the law. It didn't work out real well. But now righteousness is through Christ. Romans 3.10 says, It is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Proverbs 12.28 says, In the path of righteousness is life. And in its pathway, there is no death. So let's further this transition and go to chapter 3, verse 1. So see what kind of love the Father has given to us. That. Now, if you are taking notes or you're on version, underline, highlight the word that. That's important. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. He's making this turn and he's bringing love into this teaching on living righteously. See this great love that he has for us. That, which means this is what his love is giving us. We should be called children of God and so we are. Does it feel like love? To be called a child of God? (laughs) It should. 
The fact that here, God who has created everything, we are separated because of sin. We are nothing without him. We are just dust on the earth. From dust we were to dust we'll return, says, you are my child. (laughs) He's saying that's what it looks like to be loved by God. You're adopted into his family. This is a big deal. This is one of the central tenets as to why we're supposed to love each other because he's adopted all of us, if we are followers of Jesus, into his family. And so when we look at each other, rather than seeing you or your past or, or the circumstances of your life, what I see when I see you is I see Christ. I say, you're another child of God. We're all one family. This is what the love of God wants to give you. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. Now remember Athanasius would say, you are in a state of becoming. You have become much in your faith up to this point, but you're still in a broken world. You're still struggling with sin. That time is going to change after Jesus appears again, or when we die and go to heaven, that's going to change. But at least for right now, we are God's children, and what we will be has not yet appeared. There's more coming. This is our hope. There's more going to happen. We have not, uh, what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, which is being restored to the place of what we were created to be, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. He goes on to double down on what he's already been talking about. So no one says, oh yeah, now that's the stuff. Now that's the good stuff I've been looking for. Now, that's what I want to hear. Tell me more of that. Let's get off of the sin stuff. Tell me more of that. And this is where he comes back. Verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has ever seen him or known him. Does anyone pass that test in this room? That's presumptuous of you, Leslie. Oh, you're just talking about yourself. Okay, that's all right. (laughs) Is this what this is? Is this a test? Is this what he's saying here? Like, if you're really in, you won't sin anymore. Is that what he's saying? All right, we'll come back to that. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, which is what? What were the works of the devil? This is easy. Sin. The introduction of sin, brokenness into the world. He was cast out. He decided to share his misery with all of humanity. And we willingly took it. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Which is different. Is that making a practice of sinning change the understanding of what he's saying a little bit differently than just using the word sin? What's the difference between practice of sinning and just sinning? Practicing, you're, okay, you're living in sin. It's intentional. 
You're trying to be delivered. Oh, deliberate. You're, yeah. Oh, you're trying to be deliberate in your sin. Yeah, I'm doing, I'm choosing to do this. I like this. Yeah. What else? Not being repentant. Or aware, maybe. What? Somebody back here? Habitual. I don't even know if habitual is the right word. You know, I, no, I mean, I think that's approaching it. Habitual can mean, oh, I'm here again. And I think Paul would say he was a habitual sinner. But habitual in the sense of, ah, it's not a big deal. Yeah, I'm doing it. I mean, that, those are two different things. So it, it could be different. Yeah. Um, so when you've given up the war against your sin, mm. whenever it becomes living in it, whenever you're not at war with it anymore. Mm, when you're not at war. What does it look like to be at war with sin? That's a good way to describe it. Good, good. I was just going to tag on. I mean, if you're at war with something, if you choose to be at war with something, you recognize it's an enemy that is worthy to fight against, and you don't just give in. Mm-hmm. So that that's the whole thing, is that you recognize it's something that needs to be fought and battled in your life, and, and to not give up on that. Yeah. Herman? I think when you become complacent, doesn't bother you anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, this particular thing, oh, here in the back. I can't see who that is. If you're like actively against trying to like warring against sin or something, you would be constantly trying to fix yourself on the stuff that you see that you're doing. Yeah. Let's say you are lying and stuff and like you see yourself lying at certain times and Yeah. Okay. Beatitudes are a good example of what it looks like to fight against that. Yeah. This is one of the problems that righteousness is, is not a fun topic because, you know, we start moving into the realm of motive instead of just action. It's much easier to stay in the realm of action, but God's in the realm of motive, right? Like, um, uh, I've never had an affair. So, pretty good. Well, have you ever lusted for somebody? Because if you have, it's exactly the same thing. You know, I'm pretty good at the Ten Commandments. I never killed anybody. Have you ever hated anybody? Because if you hate somebody, it's exactly the same sin as if you had killed them. See, God operates in this level of motive. Outside just our level of action. It's easy for us to create a list of, of acceptable and non-acceptable actions. And this is one of the reasons that we can't look at somebody and pass judgment and why God is the only one who can do that, because we don't know. They did it again. 
But we don't know how hard they're fighting against it. Versus they did it again. Maybe they're not fighting against it at all. I mean, only God knows that. So how we look at others is important when we begin to judge and when we begin to determine, okay, your sins are acceptable. This is on my acceptable list, which are almost always the ones that I sin. (laughs) And then these are all the non-acceptable ones, which are almost always the sins I don't struggle with. Yeah. You're asking a hard question. First, I would say this. I would rather you hate me than murder me. I'll tell you that right now, okay? Um, but the reason it's a hard question is some of this is an issue of just uh, of sanctification, which is uh, another uh, big word for maturing. You know, Scripture would say there's no difference. There's no difference. But we also recognize, I recognize in my life that there are things early on in my faith that um, I was not as good at avoiding than I am now. I've grown. I've gotten better. Um, also recognize that the human heart, while God is changing it, still struggles with all the same old stuff. So temptation is not sin. If I were to say the main difference And someone who's fighting against sin and someone who isn't. I would say the definable um, difference would be, is repentance present or not? And even then, that creates another conversation. Does it lead you to a place of asking forgiveness? Or does it lead you to a place of just like, oh, well. Because repentance, what it really means is, I recognize my fault and I'm now going in a different direction. That's what repentance means. But I, I think we can each recognize that some areas of repentance in our life are harder than others. And we, but the defining characteristic, I would say, is does it lead you to a place of mourning for your behavior or not? And if there's no mourning for your behavior, then there's likely no work of repentance within you, which means that you are practicing sinfulness. That's what I would say. Yeah, go ahead. Yes, I would say that's a process of sanctification, of growing and maturing. And I would say we each have those areas of our lives in which I'm working on it. I'm working. I mean, Scripture says, work out your salvation. It's not going to just happen. I mean, Paul says, I, you know, I box the air, I train, you know, I want to I finish well. You know, it, there, we would all, we all have our own issues. But I... I choose to believe, and I believe I have some scriptural evidence for this, that God is not going, man, you screwed up again. You are the biggest screw up. 
I mean, God can totally say that about me. He's got all the evidence he needs to say that's true. But I choose, based on what I read in Scripture, for God to look down and say, you know what, well done for fighting this fight. I'm with you in the fight. Keep up the fight. You're not alone. We all have those places. We just have different issues. We just have different issues. Yeah, it's good. It's good. All right, let's keep going. So I think we've, we've killed that question uh, to death, which is the difference between sinning and what is the practicing of sin. Verse 10, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Like, what? (laughs) This is one of those verses in which you're like, I'm tracking, I'm tracking, what? (laughs) I'm going to be righteous. Okay, I need to do the right thing. Okay, I got it. Let's do the right thing. And if the message stops there, then it becomes a very oppressive message. Because we've already established that you and I are not able to do the right thing repetitively all the time. We're practicing it. My dad used to say there's a reason that they call medicine a practice. You just don't want to practice it on you, right? But there's a reason that they call it a practice. I'm working on it. I'm learning things. I'm getting better at this. It is not the hard, fast, I've got it all licked. So as we come through this, Let me ask you this in verse 6. This is what I asked you before. It says, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Do you think that verse 6, what John is saying, is that you, if you sin, you are no longer a Christian? Do you believe that's what he's saying? Why? Why? There's a difference between committing a sin and living in or practicing. Right. You know, I think it illustrates that, and yeah. it, it further, it further, I think, communicates to us that we are we're we, the best thing that we can do is to know that if we are if we're practicing righteousness, if that becomes more important than living in sin out of self gratification for whatever you know whatever that looks like. I mean, because to your point earlier, we we don't all wrestle with the same thing. Right. Then we are moving in the direction of righteousness and holiness and being set apart. Mm-hmm. And to understand that we're always going to be on that, moving in that path. Mm-hmm. We're not going to attain something on this side of heaven, if that makes sense. In which case, we would never sin, right? Right. That's always going to be an issue for us, regardless of what that is. It's just that we don't, we recognize sin for what it is, and when it does happen, we repent. Yeah. Because repentance is not a one-time thing. It's not like you repent and get baptized, and then that's like the one time you do it. It's you're repenting every day mm-hmm. of what whatever the sin is you're dealing with. Good, good. Okay, good, good. Um, I want to I want to get down to verse eleven, and I and I want to take some time for you guys to talk together, and and I want to make sure I'm not keeping our children's workers longer than they're supposed to again <laughs> this week. Um, I want to move down to verse eleven because he introduces. With this practicing righteousness, you cannot practice sin or live without loving your brother and still be a child of God. That's a huge statement to make. Um, The question of love being brought into 
righteousness. Let's go on to verse, uh, verse 11. It says, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning. For this, uh, which is, also gets the same prominence as that, gets the same prominence of for or therefore. In other words, I've just made a statement, now I'm going to explain it. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning. But we should love one another. Now, if you read your Bible based on your chapter titles, then you will easily break this apart and say, okay, we're done talking about sin. Now we're going to talk about love. And while he is definitely changing the tone of his talking, he is, con- he is continuing the same thought, which means we have to continue the same thought with him and understand what does this mean for us. For this is the message you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. These are the greatest commandments. Uh, this is what it looks like to fulfill the law, is whenever we love others. We love God and we love others. He then goes into this interesting um, not analogy, but an illustration from the Old Testament. We should not be like Cain, who was of the devil, or was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. So he's introducing, we've got to love each other. And now don't be like Cain, whose deeds were evil. And he killed his brother, whose actions were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. And who are the brothers? Other followers of Jesus. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in in him. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Again, this goes right to the core of our societal understanding of what it looks like. To live righteously or to love others. Do I have to do one or the other? And John would say, no. I mean, you're not really born of God unless you're doing both. Why do you think John tells us not to be surprised when the world hates us? Why do you think he says that? Gene? We've got two different natures. Yeah, you know, the world doesn't hate Christians because we love. The world doesn't hate Christians because we serve. The Lord doesn't, I mean, the world doesn't hate Christians because we're generous. The world doesn't hate Christians because we assemble in facilities all over the world and worship. The world doesn't hate us for those things. They hate us because we pursue righteousness. That's why they hate us. Because the message of the world is, whatever you want to be right is what is right for you. And to then say, no, we are going to submit to a higher authority 
So I'm going to take my idea of righteous, I'm going to throw it out the window, and I'm going to, do, I'm going to spend my entire life trying to understand his idea of righteous and live within that because that's the way he created me to be in the beginning. The world hates us because of our stance on righteousness. Now, I will say, because someone will push back and say, well, they hate us because we are bad examples of Jesus. Well, that is true too, okay? But let's say that what John is, John is not talking about that. John is talking about good examples of following Jesus. If you're a good example of following Jesus, the world's going to hate you. And this is where love and righteousness struggle. Because when you love someone, you want them to love you back, don't you? What kind of life is it when you love someone that hates you? It's a struggle. And that's why, in many cases, it's easier to just give in to whatever the world wants because we want to love them, and we feel like that's what Jesus wants us to do, but they hate us unless we give in on stuff. And what they want us to give in on is not the idea of love, is not the idea of salvation, it is the idea of righteousness, that we submit to an authority other than ourselves. This is the struggle. This is why each one of us have to do the hard work to figure this question out. I can lay out for you what I believe is, the, uh, is how love and righteousness coincides, and I've done a little bit of that, but it doesn't matter what I say. What matters is what you say. Because God's not going to judge you based on what I said. God's not going to address you, or, or to, you're not going to stand before, before him in either confidence or shame based on what I've said. It's going to be based on what you've said. I'll stand in judgment for what I've said. And the way I've lived. And what I've believed. No one will stand in judgment for me other than Christ. Because he died for me. So it's not important what I say within your eternal life. What is important is what you say. Because that's what you will answer for. Now we can get into also, there's, we can get lots of rabbit holes. If for me as a teacher, <laughs> scripture says... I am going to be held more accountable for someone that's not a teacher. So there are levels of accountability. But let me encourage you to do the hard work to figure out how you marry love and righteousness together. So as we come through this, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth Here's what I want you to do. I just want to take, I want you to take a couple, you know, couple of minutes, people around you, and based on what we've read so far, how would you define love, especially based in verses 16 through 18? How would you define love? So you're somebody sitting around you. If you're sitting by yourself, kind of turn around, or if you see somebody sitting by themselves, involve them, and just a couple of minutes. I want to try to come up with some basic definition of love based on those verses. All right? Ready? I know you're ready to go. It's about lunchtime. We're almost done. What's love?
All right, kind of submit your uh, thoughts. How should we define love based on these verses? Jenny? Sacrifice. Sacrifice, okay. What else? How should we define love based on these verses? Hmm? Behind me? Oh. Well, to come out here then. Kind actions and words, yeah. Okay. Care, caring for people, getting, getting in. This is not, we're not good at this right now. 
Um, we're busy. We can engage on a very false um, level of, of intimacy, um, very shallow relationships, but caring for people. That's, yeah. Um, I will just tell you this. I'm not going to give you my definition of this. Uh, this is your struggle for the rest of your life. <laughs> Uh, if you don't struggle with this question, I'm, you're, not, you're not asking the right questions in life. Um, when he says to love, the world is going to say, do the things that tell me I'm okay. okay. And sometimes we get to do that, and it's a joy when we get to love in that way. And sometimes we have to say, you need to turn and repent. Because this is a broken way of living life. This is not the way you were created to be. And the world will say, well, that's not loving. But God would say, I want you to be what I created you to be. That is the very best existence you can have. This is exactly what we hope heaven will be like. But we won't know that until we engage with one another on a level deeper than just, hey, how are you? Which is what we do in the South. How are you? I'm good. I mean, you may be like, you know, Falling apart, but I'm good because that's what we say in this out. Get taking the opportunity to get to know people. So, um, what you just said, like you have to like be truthful. In verse 18, it says, um, "My little tro- children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Mm-hmm. Like and in truth. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you cannot be loving someone and lying to them. Yeah, yeah. You, know, you can't." Yeah, both at the same time. we have to be active in this endeavor. We have to be active. All right, I'm going to wrap up for today. For next week, uh, we're going to start with verse 19. This is a good conversation. If this leads you to leave this place and ask more questions and begin to dig, dig deeper in Scripture yourself, then this is a success. Uh, if you go, oh, that was cool, and you walk away and never think about this again, this is an absolute failure. Um, So I hope that you'll take this, you'll struggle with these questions, you will talk to others about them, and uh, that you will experience what Christ wants. Um, John's primary message, what I'm going to leave you with, is that we most authentically demonstrate that we are followers of Jesus through our love for others and our obedience to Christ. Not one or the other, but both. And you will be in tension in these two areas. We feel that tension. We struggle with the discussion. There is a tension at times to do what you feel is loving and to feel it what you do is obedient. This is part of the role of the Holy Spirit within us to help weed us through to the place that God would say, this is what I say is the righteous way of living your life. We have to have the Holy Spirit doing that. That's one of his roles in helping us to understand scripture. How will you respond to this? Let me encourage you just to ask yourself some questions. Um, Who do you need to love? Who do you need to love? If we're going to be specific about this, we're supposed to love not only the brothers, but we're also supposed to love our enemies and pray for them. You know, who do you need to love? Who do you wish would stop breathing at this moment? You need to love them. You need to love them. All right? Who do you need to love? The, who, whoever that question is for you will indicate something, some internal struggle in your faith. How am I going to love them? All right? For some of you, that means you need to love President Trump. 
And I'm not making a political statement. Some of you, you need to love whoever the, the Democratic candidate is going to be. Some of you need to love the people that you go to work with and you wish they would get fired. And you need to love them. Some of you need to love that family member that you would like to strangle if it were legal. You'd like to do that. Okay? Now, the, the challenge is that we love the way that God loves. And we recognize whoever that person is that we wish would stop breathing, God loves them. And we are as bad as they are. And so they're deserving of our love too. I do not pretend that it is easy. This is a part of growth. But ask yourself the question, who do you need to love? What sin do you need to overcome? What has become so habitual that you just do it and you don't feel like you should be held accountable for it? Every one of us has one of those or more. What sin do you need to overcome? And how do you need to live righteously today? Jenny, we've got to close. We're out of time. Come up and talk to me after, okay? And I'll answer any questions you got to the best of my ability, all right? Let's pray. Father, God, thank you that even in the midst of our brokenness and sin, even in the midst of, the, of our self-assurance, self-righteousness, and the belief that we are better than someone else, you've still loved us. You still came and died on the cross for us. And Father, we still have the opportunity to be restored to what you initially intended. I pray that we would live that out. I pray that you would help us to overcome the sin that we are fighting in our lives. I pray for that person or those people in this room right now who have been fighting the same sin and they're about to give up because what's the point? I can't fight it. But God, you have said we are waging a war not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against spirits of the air. We are literally waging war against Satan himself. And Father, you have said you are with us. You're walking with us. And you will empower us. I pray for confidence and encouragement to fight the sin that they're so ready to give up on. And I do pray that we would be a people that did love no matter what anyone says about us. Help us to love fully, wholly, personally in the way that you do. And Father, I pray that you would just make these things in your word that at times can feel confusing. Make them gel in such a way in which we can faithfully follow out and honor you by living righteously so that we can stand confidently before you, excited for your return and not living in shame. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.